1: Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness, where we will share insights for healing, understanding, growth, and spirituality. My name is Mara James, the founder and CEO of the Hugs for Life Healing Center, a division of the Extraordinary Lives Foundation. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you our guest, Corey DeVell, a clinical hypnotherapist and one of my amazing personal healers.
2: Hi, everybody. <laughs>
1: So Tori, uh, we call him Tori in my house. So Corey, um, as most people, several people know, seven years ago um, this month, I experienced a manic episode and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was heavily medicated, stuck in bed, um, met with a psychiatrist, a therapist, and a few months later, thankfully I was introduced to you. I ran into a friend from tennis and we started talking and she was telling me that she met you and she's working with you to help her with meditation. And that's all I needed to hear those words because I wanted help with meditation because there's no way I was going to sit down and not do anything and just breathe. Um, and that's the beautiful, beautiful story of how we met. And what is so you have taught me so many things. I know you like don't like to be called or referred to as a spiritual guru but you are. And I would love if you could share with um, our friends listening a little bit about your story.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's very detailed and, and, you know, probably go on for, for days and days, but, you know, in a nutshell, I think that, that everybody has in, in, in them built into them, a, a kind of calling, so to speak. And, uh, Mine was very, very early on in life. I, I know that even as an infant, I, I had a tendency towards spirituality and, and really didn't understand what that what that was so much uh, from early, early memories. I mean, as young as when um, my mother was holding me over the coffin uh, of my great grandmother who died at 106, uh, for some reason, my mother was holding me over her casket. And she took my little arm, I was about, I think maybe about nine months old. And she took my arm and she had my hand touch my grandmother's forehead. And uh, it was, I don't understand the ritual of it. You know, we were raised Catholic for anybody who wants to know that. But Uh, that particular ritual, I don't know that that's a Catholic ritual. Let's just say that it it happened to be that my mother's family's issue, whatever that was. But anyway, the bottom line was when I touched her forehead, I didn't see her in that casket anymore. In other words, I saw this delightful about maybe a seven-year-old girl dancing in this meadow and she was like her arms were flailing in the air and she was whirling around and I was observing as a person you know of course I couldn't talk and I couldn't you know say anything to anybody at the time but I could observe and I, I was all of a sudden when I touched her forehead I could see her as this little girl dancing in a in a meadow and I was wondering why everybody was crying You know, she'd lived a long life. I mean, this woman was 106 years old, so she'd done pretty much everything she wanted to do. But for some reason, uh, that's what happened to me at that very, very early age. And I remembered that throughout the course of my life. I was always going back to these kind of spiritual epiphanies here and there. And there were many others along the way. But when you ask about, you know, when that started, it was really early on for me, very early on.
1: That is so amazing. And you are so blessed for someone like me who didn't even believe in a universe for 48 years until I kind of got knocked in the head with what was diagnosed as a manic episode, but it was also a very big spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Having you there, grounded here in planet Earth, but being able to guide me through my um awakening, but also my healing journey was so profound. And there are so many. F- sayings that I've learned from you that I use over and over with my clients, for example, and you'll get into this, of course, um, you tell me that hurt people hurt people and that people act out of a volition that's not their own. Um, And that, you know, whatever's put into our heart is that what we desire and that the universe or God or whatever you want to call it wants to give us everything we want, of course, in his time or his way so that we're humble and grateful, But also the only thing that's blocking it is our anger and resentment. And as soon as you said that, I knew that I had a long journey ahead of me to (laughs) let go of my resentment towards my dad, which I could happily say seven years later. um, And I forgave him a week ago. And it's just been profound. So Mm -hmm. if you can kind of talk to those things, as well as how people hold their um, emotions and emotional physical cellular and spiritual level that would be
2: great yeah it's it, it's it's interesting where all of this comes from and, and you know people are looking for resources on on you know where i get this kind of information because i'm i'm kind of talking about it of course on a on a metaphysical level because i'm i'm much more inclined toward metaphysics uh, than the practical application let's say you know psychology or psychiatry or you know of the let's say the scientific approach, there is a lot of validation to what I'm talking about when I say things like that That part of us that learns early on in life who we are is basically formulated between the ages of of, birth and about six or seven years old. That's when we're forming our personality. The book that I'm currently writing now is called The Compliant Child Syndrome, and it has a lot to do with what we're doing during that time frame we're basically a sponge. That's who we are. We're we're learning about life like a sponge is soaking up water. We don't have the, the wherewithal or the communication skills at birth to have somebody explain to us, this is what it's like for you to adjust to your family. This is what it's like for you to adjust to society. This is what it's going to be like for you to adjust to other kindergarten kids. We don't have that, we we are learning by experience. So we're observing our family, our immediate family, and that's where we get what uh, Bruce Lipton would call uh, programming. Uh, And Bruce Lipton, just so some of the people here would know, is he's a cellular biologist who, uh, I think it was the University of Wisconsin where he was teaching at medical school there for many years and then he went on to work at Stanford. Uh, university as a researcher in the area of epigenetics. In any case, the bottom line of what I'm talking here that coincides with, let's say, the scientific approach here, is that that, that part of our personality is formulated early on, even though it may not necessarily go along with, let's say, a, a, a personal want or need to be a certain type of person, we learn how to behave in the world based on our experience. So as we get older, those old experiences become more and more a process of how we cope with life. And this is what I mean by if, you know, if a person is reacting, let's say with a tendency toward negativity, their negativity was something that they probably observed in their family one way or another. You know, this is, for instance, my family, I always use myself as an example, My father's tendencies were leaning toward the adjustments of medication, which was alcohol. Uh, Another emotional adjustment that he had that he resorted to almost all the time was anger. He always forced things. He was very, very aggressive that way. Well, I found myself later on in life utilizing those same tools. When I was in my 20s, I clearly had too much to drink. Uh, And it wasn't just at college. It was just, you know, everywhere in my life, alcohol seemed to be one of the adjustments that I was making, not because I wanted to. It was more because I didn't know how not to. That was my adjustment. And until I owned it and I I realized where it was coming from, that was when I was able to let it go, just like smoking cigarettes and alcohol and, you know, let's say the anger behaviors, those tendencies, I had to let those go. And the only way that I could do it was by letting go of the resentment that I had toward my father. And many people out there will probably know what I'm talking about. Here, we, we have our, our resentments, let's say. And it's interesting that as we get older, we become a lot like our parents or like people that we might not necessarily admire all that much. If it's a good thing, then we don't worry about it. But most of the time, we notice it when we're becoming, let's say, less than a desirable personality. That's when we start to notice. For me, it was, you know, I I noticed that I was too ang, too uh, too quick to get to anger. Uh, I resorted to alcohol as a means by which I could chill out or whatever. Those kinds of behaviors weren't mine. I picked them up, and that's what I mean by acting out of a volition that isn't ours. Almost everybody on this planet is doing the same thing. They just don't know that they are. And, and for whatever reason, they haven't you know, gotten to that. They will over a period of time. They'll find out if they do enough introspection. They'll find out that it's usually attached to a form of resentment. So when you say, you know, the people who hurt, hurt other people, it's the victim generally will become the victimizer. It's another way of putting it.
1: Wow, that is amazing. So you say we become like that which we resent.
2: Mm-hmm. So people would say, Yeah, not because we want to, but because we don't know how not to.
1: So if someone is born to an alcoholic parent and that child or person resents their parent, is do, are they guaranteed to become an alcoholic, A, and B... He, some people would say, well, it's a chemical imbalance. And I always say that if, as you change the heart, you could change the brain
2: chemistry. Right, right. Uh, you know, and it, it there, to varying degrees, that will be the scenario. And it's just what I'm talking about is just practical application. I've just seen so many people over the years that I've seen how this dynamic works. There are cycles in our lives and these patterns of behavior, like you were saying, in, the good example for me, or bad one as the case may be, is alcoholism. What I observed in my family was that my, my father's father died of alcoholism by, I think it was like 40 years old. Uh, my father died of alcoholism. Uh, he, he actually quit drinking for 20 years. And then the minute he went back to it, he died. Uh, four of my seven brothers have died of alcoholism. Now, again, they had made up their minds. My brothers and I had talked about this when we were kids, how violent my father was and how he was so, uh, let's say, oppressively anger, uh, I mean, anger driven toward the boys in the family. So that if, if we just looked at him a certain way, he would smack us, you know, it was that kind of thing. And he was always that way when he was tipsy you know, and getting toward being drunk. So my brothers would always say things like, well, when, I'm, when I grow up and I have children, I'm going to be really nice to them. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be mean-spirited. I'm not going to beat them. I'm going to try reasoning with them and all of that stuff. It's interesting that later on in life, they did change those behaviors in themselves in terms of how my father behaved toward them. In other words, they didn't respond with anger toward their children, but they had anger inside themselves. And that anger transferred into a kind of self-loathing that created the dynamic of alcoholism. So in spite of the fact that in one area of their lives, they changed this consciousness of uh, beating the children or something like that, but they still maintained that adjustment of medicating themselves with alcohol to the point where it was so abusive that they literally died of alcohol-related issues in one way or another whether it was cirrhosis of the liver, kidney failure, any number of other things, but they were all related to cirrhosis basically of the liver.
1: So would you say that you at one point might've been considered an alcoholic? Absolutely. and, And how did you go from that to where you are today?
2: The process for me was recognizing where it came from. And a lot of what I do today with you know, a process I call biofeedback, where I, I get the person into the theta stage, where I can uh, talk to the subconscious mind, uh, I find out where the traumas are, where this behavior, let's say this aberrant behavior, whether it's, it's too much eating, whether it's you know, alcohol abuse or you know, whatever it happens to be usually people will see me when they have a behavior and they're wanting to change it. it even if it's like just not, not being able to find the right person, let's say. Um, the, uh, there's a trauma behind it somewhere. And all I have to do is get them to a stage where they're in the, the theta stage. And I can ask the subconscious mind what's going on. Well, I, I had to find that out about myself. And I did it in a variety of different ways at first, but it was through primarily through meditation. Uh, and giving myself permission to be the observer, so to speak, and, and see where this behavior was coming from, where, where I was actually, uh, when I thought about my father and I, I had this underlying resentment there, even though on a conscious level, if you had asked me if I resented my father, I would have told you, no, absolutely not. My father was very strict and mean, and I defend him in a, in a multitude of ways and justify his behavior toward the boys, which was overtly angry and, and mean-spirited. But I would defend that behavior in him because I'd say, oh, well, you know what? It kept me from being the uh, kind of kid in my neighborhood who was stealing things. You know, all of my friends were thieves and in you know, gangs and you know, that sort of thing. And it kept me out of the gangs because I was more afraid of my father than I was the police. So, you know, it was like, you know, that was in manner of speaking, that was a saving grace for, for me, you know, that he was that violent. But the other side of it, of course, is the trauma that went with it. And the trauma had that underlying behavior to it, that, you know, that alcohol or that, let's say, that addictive behavior pattern that was there. As I was uncovering my resentment for my father, I just noticed that I didn't want to drink anymore. That it it was something that I was able to start letting go of. And as I I went through that process of letting go and releasing more and more, there were different waves, let's say, waves of consciousness that were happening. And the next thing I know is I was able to let go of one thing, you know, the anger. I was letting, you know, as I let go of the anger, I was letting go of more of the drinking issue. And eventually it just all subsided and I got to a place where I didn't drink anymore. And I wasn't nearly as angry.
1: That is so amazing. And when we were working together at the beginning and working on, I was so angry. Oh, my goodness. Um, But as I was working on letting go of my anger and resentment, um, after about a year and a half, I was able to be weaned off of my medication and never experience a manic episode again. And that was so profound. You know, you talk about the Theta State and to someone like me, I don't even know what that means and it sounds scary and how do I get there? But I just want to share um, the process that you do where we stand up and you ask the body a question and literally it leans forward for a yes and back for a no. And now I do that with my clients to guide them, to see, you know, which healer they want to see. It's so profound and it's done like, you, you know, you feel like you're fully awake, even though they might be in an altered state. And it's just so amazing. The things that, um, can occur. We shared on another podcast when I interviewed my husband, OBGYN, who um, you transformed his life like that in one session when he had so much anxiety about being late to something and he wanted to go to the airport four hours early and I would say you're crazy and he goes you're self centered I'm like hmm, am I no and finally a few years ago my daughter said Dad why don't you go to the airport and we'll meet you there and he realized all his you know Michigas. and so he didn't he went with us and when we got home I he you know just said come with me to Corey what's it gonna worst case scenario waste time and money let's just do it and it was beautiful because you were doing the biofeedback and at first I know he was a little scared um but it was profound and you were able to determine that he took on this energy from his father and you released it and the next day he calls me he's like I just did surgery and instead of running to the office I'm gonna get a cup of coffee <laughs> that was so profound um so before we go on Corey I want we're gonna take a quick break, so we'll have a little breather, and we'll be back in a minute.
2: Okay,
0: sounds good. In these shifting and changing times, more and more lives are being impacted by mental health. The Extraordinary Lives Foundation, also known as ELF, is transforming the way people view and navigate mental health challenges. Their mission is to improve children's mental health and wellness and support families by providing educational tools, resources, and awareness events. ELF encourages families to recognize symptoms, overcome the stigma, and reach out for help. visit the Extraordinary Lives Foundation website at www.elfempowers.org to find out more about their resources and events. Together, we can change the conversation around mental health. We hope that you're enjoying today's Let's Talk Wellness podcast and if you have a topic that you would like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. Simply email us at info at org. That's info at elfempowers.org. And now back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Let's Talk Wellness. I'm your host, Mara James. And today we have one of my favorite healers and friend, Corey Duval.
2: Yay! <laughs>
1: Corey! <laughs> So Corey, you have so many amazing stories and we could be here all day sharing. Um, I'd love for you to share about the story about your one client that lost what was a couple hundred pounds,
2: almost 300 pounds. Yeah. Wow. Three years. Yeah. He came in to see me at, uh, he was at 450 pounds, a little bit, even a little bit over 450 pounds and, uh, wanted to lose weight and, uh, you know, I started to do the biofeedback with him once I explained to him what it was really all about. And he was open to the process. We did the, the process you were talking about before the break, the biofeedback, how if a person is in the, the theta stage and we get them to respond, and it's, a, it's what, what people will call, uh, Brad Nelson calls it the sway test in his book called The Emotion Code. Uh, and there are other people that have written about how the body keeps the score. A man named Van, Van Der Kolk, who's an MD, wrote about this uh, as well. Our, our bodies store trauma. It's not just emotional. It can be physical. It can be cellular. And it can be even be spiritual or, or something to do with our, our core belief system. Uh, with, with this particular person, when he came in to see me, I was asking him questions about what was going on, what the family dynamic was. And here's the basic uh, background. He came from a family where everybody was heavy, as they put it. Basically, they tended toward obesity. And he would learned early on in life that this was basically how the family made their adjustment to life in general. They had wonderful big meals. And they, you know, that was, you know, the family gathering and all of that stuff. It was all kind of a celebration. uh, And it was all done with food. Now, it's not to say that food is a bad thing. You know, obviously, we need it to survive. But when it becomes an obsessive behavior, that's when all kinds of other things start coming up. Well, we found out that his trauma, as strange as this sounds, his trauma actually had to do with one of his aunts who was visiting. And he was about three years old, and he was at you know perfect size and shape for a three-year-old. He hadn't been leaning toward obesity at all. He was just a perfectly normal little three-year-old kid. She held him up in the air, and she was talking to him. And this is maybe will have a, a profound effect on people who think that just because a child isn't capable of speaking yet that they don't understand what we're talking about he remembered with clarity that she held him up in the air and she was telling him what a beautiful little boy he was. And she said, it's too bad that you're going to be fat. Mm. Those were the words to him that stuck in his mind. And from that point forward, every time she visited, and she'd visit like you know twice a year, come in from, I think it was Utah or someplace like that. And she would always say to him, oh my goodness, You look so big, you're growing so big. Isn't that wonderful?" And she would just like, I think in her mind, she was talking about height-wise, you know, that he was getting bigger. But in his mind, it was, I'm getting bigger. I'm going out this way. I'm not going up, I'm going wide. And that consciousness was in him his whole life. So he believed, and you know, when they went to physicians, you know, the family, you know, doctors would say, look, your family has a tendency toward obesity. No matter what you eat, it's probably going to move you in the direction of being heavy. Uh, So, you know, the best that you can do here is, is try not to eat too much, try to exercise a lot. But the fact of the matter is your genetic gene pool here is basically leaning toward obesity. So he had a verification on all levels that this was what was going to be his life's lot, you know, his his lot in life, so to speak. Once we found out where it came from, and we released that, and by the way, it was very tearful for him, you know, there was a lot of crying that had to do with this because there was this infant in him that wound up believing what this person had said to such a degree that his life was, was isolation, you know, uh, binge eating here and there, just all making excuses. At one point in time, he told me that he would make excuses when he'd go to like Big Mac or I mean to um, Burger King. He'd order a couple of Big Macs and a couple order fries and, you know, a drink. And then he'd drive out, eat that and go back again. And he'd actually make up excuses and say, oh, yeah, the people at the office wanted me to come back and get them some. Can I get another couple of Big Macs? And you know, I mean, this was all part of his dread in life. As he came to this realization, all of a sudden, the weight started to come off. Now, you know, people will say, oh, well, you have to do this or you have to do that. It was quite interesting that his tendency toward eating just slackened. He stopped eating the, the you know, it wasn't like he quit going to you know, whatever, you know, burger place he wanted to go to but he found himself eating less. He started eating half a hamburger instead of a whole hamburger, maybe half a, a group of fries and he wouldn't order the soft drink anymore. Uh, there were these kinds of things that would happen. And then he started exercising. That was something that was unknown to his whole family. He would walk just maybe to the end of his block and then come back and he was tired. You know, that was when you're carrying that much weight, that was you know a lot to lug around. But the bottom line here, He started doing things. He started becoming proactive in all of this. And as his consciousness was moving toward that place in infancy where it all began, there was an endless amount of energy there. He was, you know, he started becoming that, that, that little kid again that had all this energy in him. And from that point forward, he, he was just unstoppable. There were little trigger places along the way. When he, when he lost 50 pounds, it wasn't a big deal because he was so heavy that you know at 400 pounds, it was like, okay, you lost some weight, good. Probably gonna put it back on again. And that's usually what happened in the past, but not this time. He lost that weight and he just continued from that point forward. Now, when he lost 100, there, were some, there was some resistance, even in his family. We haven't seen you at this weight in a long time. Are you sure you're okay? I mean, you're not sick, are you? There's some, you know, they were all of a sudden all of the people in his family that were equally as heavy were now questioning this whole process. Are you sure you're not, you know, losing this weight too quickly? Well, it was happening to the rate of about 10 pounds a month. It was very gradual. But as you know, then when he got to 200 pounds, There was a lot more resistance. Now people are saying, "My gosh, this is like this is really noticeable." You haven't been at this weight since you were in high school. You know, are you sure you're okay? You're not sick, are you? Go to the doctor. You got to find out. He did all of that stuff, and he was just on a he was on a regiment, man. Now by that time, after he had lost 200 pounds, he was now walking maybe three or four miles a day. And then by the time he got to about 250 pounds um, of weight loss, he started to run marathons. Now, the interesting thing about this, (laughs) and it goes beyond all this, is that his changing himself literally changed his family. All of these people in his family who had bought into this theory of it's in our genes, we're all destined to be obese Now they started to lose weight. And the last time I talked to him about this, the family itself, his brothers and sisters had lost half a ton of weight by observing him. His sisters started to run marathons. Uh, I mean, it was just amazing. The whole family just started to, to, to develop this new belief that no longer had to do with obesity. It was awesome. It was really amazing to watch. That's and continues so
1: to go on. Unbelievable. The power of the subconscious mind. Yep. Wow. Um, I'd love to share a couple of stories of how my you know, you've know you helped my husband's patients who's an OBGYN. One of them um, was a patient of his that's also a friend of mine. And she just knows that whenever she's going to die, it's all good. There's fate. However, she has such anxiety when she's flying and she would need us to prescribe her something to fly. And I said, just go to Corey. And she goes to you in one session, you're doing the biofeedback and you guys figure out that when she was in her mom's belly, her mom had a panic attack and you released the energy. And then that week she was able to fly in your medicine. So amazing. And another time my husband had a patient who was pregnant with her second child and it wasn't even her, but her husband was experiencing panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know, do you recall how you were even able to help prevent, you know, end the panic attacks? It's profound. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, it's all, you know, it, it basically boils down to the same thing with every person that I work with. The, the, the formula is basically the same. The individuals have you know, different reasons. You know, we're varied in how we, we grow up and our social backgrounds and all the rest of it. But there are some things that basically are true about all of this. And the reasons for why we hold on to our traumas, they, they, start, they can be emotional to begin with. They can move into, from emotion to physicality. We had, I had somebody just earlier today who had a trauma that happened to her head. She, was, she literally stumbled and she was half asleep as she was walking to the bathroom and she tripped over something and hit her head on the wall and had a concussion. So it, there wasn't an emotion about that. So the physical trauma was independent of the emotion. But many times what happens is emotional trauma will become physical. And it manifests, not, not unlike a person, let's say, who worries a lot, will usually have some kind of a stomach ailment. And if they, they let it go unchecked, so to speak, or they, you know, they just kind of try to treat it with Pepsid or Maalox or something like that, that's not really going to resolve that issue. It may extend farther and it takes a longer time to do. But my observation is that it becomes cellular. Uh, And when it becomes cellular, that's when it really starts to get our attention, because now it's attacking the immune system. And with COVID here now, is all of the things that are going on right now. That's a very powerful force in everybody right now, this cellular trauma that's affecting our immune system. That's when the, the emotional trauma has escalated to be becoming physical, and if we didn't resolve it at the physical stage, it becomes cellular. When it's cellular, now it is attacking our immune system, and people are terrified now of this cellular trauma. The one that I talk about on the other end of the spectrum, because there are basically four that I work with, and the, the fourth one is spiritual trauma. And that has to do with our belief system. In other words, it, it could be something that has to do with religiosity or not. It could just be you know, a, 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 you know, an old saying from you know, a family tradition of some sort, you know, that, that people just believe, oh, uh, you never bend down to pick up money or something like that. I remember uh, hearing one famous actor say something like that. He saw a coin on the ground and he bent to pick it, pick it up and his father grabbed him and pulled him up and said, never kneel to get money. And it was like to him, that was this really valuable lesson that you would never bow down to to, pick up something on the street or something like that. So anyway, these are belief systems that are implemented early on in life and we wind up adhering to them, not because we want to, like I said, it's, it's more because we don't know how not to, but we do have a way of getting past that even with COVID.
1: Wow. So speaking of COVID, um, I know I have referred several patients to that were having such a traumatic reaction and you were able to help them reveal again, I'm not here to tell anybody whether or not there's such a thing as a past life, but whether or not they believe in it. Um, I know that you've done a lot of healing with COVID, um, releasing past, past life trauma. Can you share a story with us
2: about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's several actually <laughs> interesting that, that you would mention that, you know, alongside uh, COVID because in my lifetime, I've been around 71 years in this particular form and mm-hmm. I've never seen so much fear uh, in the world uh, as I have in this past year. And it's so palpable that, that most people don't even know that, but, all of us are empathic in one way or another, and we're picking up on this global fear. And it's infecting not only our personal lives in one way or another, it's infecting our relationships with other people. It's infecting relationships between men and women. You know, they're so closed in now. They're not, they don't have a little break from each other. They've been so t- you know closely tied together. Um, all of this fear, this fear-based consciousness is, is affecting people or infecting people, I should say. It becomes more infectious in our consciousness before it really settles in on a physical level. And it's not that I'm saying that you shouldn't have respect for this virus. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, do take preventive measures and do all of that. But when we're fearful, that trauma literally opens us up to being vulnerable to something. That's what fear basically is. So if we're operating out of a fear-based consciousness, that means we feel vulnerable to whatever it is. My feeling on this is that we should have respect for it. Let's respect this and do what we need to do to keep ourselves healthy and strong, exercise, work on the immune system, do the things you need to do. But we can have a healthy respect for it and not be frightened and compromise our our immune system along these lines. Now, with regard to, you know, people that I've worked with, yes, I've done some regressions with people and some biofeedback, actually, with people to where they were literally around during the time of um, uh, the Spanish flu, you know, the one that was like at the turn of the century. Uh, In my own life, uh, you know, I had the experience of working with uh, somebody that Uh, had polio early on in life and felt incredibly vulnerable. And that trauma carried over into the present moment. Uh, And of course, this goes back to the, the great plague. I've actually worked with several people who were experiencing in this life the terror and the fear that happened during the plague that was literally stories and, you know, history is written about, you know, the great plague um, that killed millions and millions and millions of people, that consciousness is still there. Whether people you know, really buy into all of this or not, my experience is very practical. All I do is ask the subconscious mind where this is coming from. And it's interesting that you know, as I'm taking a person back to the source of the trauma, just like I did with the person who had the uh, initial trauma with the weight, uh, it would go back to infancy. And then I'd ask, okay, did this happen before the age of one? You know, and it would say, yes. And I'd say, did it happen during gestation? It'd say, no, it went back farther than that. And I just keep going. And it's interesting that it will take us back, you know, however far we need to go. And it's interesting that it would go back to a timeframe that has to do with the great plague um, that happened all over Europe. And it was, you know, person literally is reliving that fearful of the present moment and that sort of thing, all of that fear is coming up, even though they didn't get it, you know, and they got their vaccines and all that. It was the fear that was making them come in to see me. And then once we let that go, of course, they feel amazing. And
1: what I love about that is, um, you know, a lot of things you've taught me. I've worked with my girlfriend who's Catholic, and she's like, Well, Catholics don't believe that. And like, that's okay, whether or not, you know, you believe it or not. And what I love is that, you know, you are able to heal people or help them heal themselves, whether or not they believe in something, the, the ability for them to say yes to releasing it is profound.
2: Yeah. And that's all that it is. That's really, it's just finding out the truth about where this is actually coming from so that you can release it and get on with your life to live that happier, healthier, you know, clear, confident life that, that everybody wants to live.
1: Yeah. And, you know, everyone just like encourage them to have the courage to take the first step into the healing and, you know, moving from fear and anxiety towards a peace place of peace, faith, love and trust. Corey, um, if someone wants to get in touch with you directly, what do you recommend?
2: Do you have a web- uh, you can look up my website. It's orangecountyhypnosiscenter.com. There's okay. A lot of information there. I, I have a little video there where I talk about things that we were talking about today. Uh, my phone number, of course, uh, if that's okay, is uh, 714-624-1956. And uh, they can contact me if I don't pick up the phone. Clearly, it's because I'm with a client. But I always try to get back to people on the same day. And uh, yeah, that's the best way. They could text me at that number or they can call me on that number. And, and I will always try to get back to you the same day.
1: Beautiful. And Corey, I love your commitment to helping to heal the world. I love your passion about where you know you work seven days a week, but it fills your heart and soul. So on behalf of our community, thank you so much. And I'd like to thank everybody for joining us at this week's episode of Let's Talk Wellness. And don't forget, you are amazing.
2: Blessings to everyone. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Wellness. This podcast has been brought to you by the Hugs for Life Healing Center, a division of the Extraordinary Lives Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you would like to listen to more conversations like this, we invite you to subscribe to our mailing list at www.elfempowers.org to be notified when our weekly episodes are published. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to bringing you our next conversation on Let's Talk Wellness.